This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. U.S. President Joe Biden says he is standing by his weekend statement that Russia's Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. AP correspondent Sagar Magani. Since Saturday, White House officials have about regime change in Moscow. He says he was expressing moral outrage over Putin's conduct in Ukraine with millions fleeing the violence to neighboring Poland. I just come from being with those families. And his remarks were more an aspiration than a foreign policy goal. People like this shouldn't be ruling countries, but they do. The fact they do, but doesn't mean I can't express my outrage about it. And says he's neither walking back the comment nor apologizing. Sagar Magani, Washington. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces claim to have retaken a Kiev suburb and an eastern town from the Russians in what is now becoming a back-and-forth stalemate on the ground. This is while negotiators continue to assemble for another round of talks on Tuesday. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says that his country is prepared to declare its neutrality and consider a compromise on contested areas in the country's east. The mayor, Irpin, says that the Kiev suburb has been liberated from Russian troops. And a senior U.S. defense official says the U.S. believes the Ukrainians have retaken one town. The official, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss intelligence assessments, says that Russia appears to be concentrating on the Donbass region, Ukraine's predominantly Russian-speaking eastern region. Again, uh, Ukrainian forces claim to have retaken a Kiev suburb in the eastern town from the Russians. More at VOANews.com. This is VOA News. The United States will need far more lithium to achieve its clean energy goals, and the industry that mines the chemical element is poised to grow. The industry also faces a host of challenges from environmentalists, indigenous groups, and government regulators. Lithium is distributed widely throughout the earth, but the U.S. is home to just one active lithium mine in Nevada. The element is critical to the development of lithium-ion batteries, which are rechargeable batteries seen as critical to reducing the carbon emissions created by cars and other forms of transportation. The January 6th committee is voting to hold Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro in contempt. We get more from AP correspondent Mike Gracia. The House Committee investigating the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, has voted unanimously to hold former Trump advisors Peter Navarro and Dan Scavino in contempt of Congress. Navarro and Scavino have refused to comply with subpoenas from the committee. The 72-year-old Navarro was subpoenaed to testify in early February. Scavino was subpoenaed last fall, with the committee seeking materials relevant to then-President Trump's videotaping and tweeting messages on January 6. In a recent report, the committee said it has reason to believe Scavino may have had advance warning about the potential for violence on January 6th. The recommendation of criminal charges now goes to the full House for approval. Mike Crossia, Washington. Taliban hardliners are turning back the clock in Afghanistan with a flurry of representative for repressive edicts 
Over the past days, Ed hark back to their harsh rule from the late 1990s. Girls have been banned from going to school beyond the sixth grade. Women are barred from boarding planes if they travel unaccompanied by a male relative. Men and women can only visit public parks on separate days, and the use of mobile telephones in universities is prohibited. Those familiar with top Taliban circles say the radical challenges and changes were ordered by the Taliban supreme leader and despite promises to the international community that that would not happen. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro has made two major personnel changes seeking to cap off a series of developments perceived as damaging to his administration before October's presidential election. The first move Monday brought the exit of Brazil's embattled education minister who resigned amid a scandal involving allegations of evangelical pastors demanding bribes. Politicians on different parties, including some supporting Bolsonaro, had called for Milton Ribeiro to leave the job. The second shift came at the country's state-run oil job where Bolsonaro changed its president after the company boosted fuel prices to pass some of the global oil increases to consumers. Via remote, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Tuesday, March 29th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukrainian forces claim to have retaken a Kiev suburb as Russian bombardment continues. A salvo of caliber cruise missiles launched from the Black Sea in the south of Ukraine as Russia's war on its neighbor enters a second month. Pakistan's opposition party tables a no-confidence vote against Prime Minister Imran Khan. The opposition insists that Prime Minister Imran Khan has been demonstrating poor governance and has mismanaged the national economy. And gunmen killed 19 people in Mexico in what authorities call one of the worst mass shootings under the current government. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Ukrainian forces claim to have retaken a Kiev suburb and an eastern town from the Russians in what is becoming a back-and-forth stalemate on the ground while negotiators are assembling for another round of talks on Tuesday. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says his country is prepared to declare its neutrality and consider a compromise on contested areas in the country's east. The mayor of Orpin says the Kiev suburb has been, quote, liberated, unquote, from Russian troops, and a senior U.S. defense official says the U.S. believes the Ukrainians have retaken the towns of Truyanets. The official who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss intelligence assessments says Russia appears to be concentrating on the Donbass, Ukraine's predominantly Russian-speaking eastern region. Russian shellings continues throughout Ukraine despite the Kremlin announcing new battle plans focused on the eastern region as a fifth week of unprovoked war on its neighbor rages. More than 10 million Ukrainians are now displaced both in and outside the country. VOS Arashar Abbasadi has the story. A salvo of caliber cruise missiles launched from the Black Sea in the south of Ukraine as Russia's war on its neighbor enters a second month. The Russian Defense Ministry claims it fired upon infrastructure of the Ukrainian armed forces. Meanwhile, in the Ukrainian city of Lviv, firefighters work to extinguish a blaze at fuel storage facilities hit by Russian cruise missiles. The next day, people seek comfort and prayer at Lviv's Church of the Holy Eucharist. 
Russia's invasion of Ukraine was the focus of a speech delivered by President Joe Biden in Poland's capital, Warsaw, on Saturday. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principles, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. The president's speech capped a four-day trip to Europe where he visited members of the 82nd Airborne Division and Ukrainian refugees in Poland. As Russian shelling continues, thick smoke fills the air in destroyed residential areas on the outskirts of Kyiv. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky in an address echoed calls for tanks, armored vehicles and jets. He compared the Russian invasion to the way Nazis tried to conquer Europe 80 years ago, adding that no one will forgive them. Arash Basadi, VOA News. Moldova, one of the poorest countries in Europe, has become a gateway for hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The government and especially Moldovan society has stepped up to help their neighbors. John Speer narrates this report from Ricardo Marquina in the Moldovan capital, Chisinau. Hundreds of thousands of refugees, most of them women and children, have already passed through facilities set up by the Moldovan government around the country. Most of them stay here for just a few days before continuing to Romania or Germany. Moldovan authorities say that for every five people in Moldova, there is now a refugee from Ukraine. The refugees bring what they can with them. Volunteers say they come from difficult and traumatic situations. The Moldovan government has launched efforts to help the refugees, but the country's civil society is taking the initiative to help deal with the crisis. People like Grigori, a Moldovan soldier who fought against the Russians in 1993, has come to welcome as many as six families in his house on the outskirts of Kishinu. He now gives shelter to two women, a mother and daughter who escaped, each with a suitcase from Kharkiv, one of the city's hardest hit by bombs. For Ricardo Marquina in Kishinu, Moldova, John Spear, VOA News. Increasing repression by Nicaragua's authoritarian government of President Daniel Ortega has sent tens of thousands of people fleeing to Costa Rica in search of protection. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. More than 150,000 Nicaraguan refugees and asylum seekers have fled to Costa Rica in the last eight months. The UN Refugee Agency says that is more than double the previous number and represents more than all the refugees combined who fled to Costa Rica during Central America's civil wars in the 1980s. The UNHCR says the sharp rise in the number of asylum seekers is due to major socio-political events in Nicaragua linked to November's presidential elections. Many peaceful protesters who opposed the results were subjected to violent crackdowns by President Daniel Ortega's security forces. UNHCR spokesman Boris Cheshikov says the large number of Nicaraguan refugees in Costa Rica is straining the country's asylum system and putting pressure on its limited resources. Costa Rica is experiencing a high level of unemployment due to the pandemic-induced economic crisis. In this context, the individual support networks that provide shelter and economic opportunities to Nicaraguans are weakened increasing the need for support from UNHCR and our partners. In a recent report on the human rights situation in Nicaragua, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, condemned the loss of fundamental freedoms, the harassment and intimidation of human rights defenders, and the suppression of political dissent. 
Her spokeswoman, Liz Throssell, says many people have been arbitrarily detained in the context of the presidential election. She says more than 40 of those people have been put on trial and have received long sentences since February. For example, Nicaragua's main opposition figure, Cristiana Chamorro, was found guilty of alleged financial crimes and was sentenced to eight years in prison. The High Commissioner has sort of given a message to the government of Nicaragua, um, calling on it and, and, and stressing that it has the power to change course, calling on the authorities to uh, unconditionally release all people who've been arbitrarily detained, also to carry out the, the necessary electoral and legal reforms, and also repeal recent laws that severely restrict public freedoms. Following the release of the High Commissioner's report, Nicaragua's Attorney General, Wendy Carolina Morales Urbina, said it was riddled with false information. She said its purpose was to undermine the country's authority, sovereignty and independence. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Pakistan's opposition leader Shabazz Sharif on Monday tabled a no-confidence vote against Prime Minister Imran Khan. This after the Speaker of Pakistan's parliament adjourned the motion on Friday. The move led to opposition accusations he was buying time to muster support after a spate of defections from his party. Political analysts said the country's powerful military had supported Khan's rise to power and that the generals have now become disenchanted with his leadership. Khan has denied receiving backing from the military. In recent weeks, more than 20 lawmakers deserted him leaving him short of the minimum 172 that he needs for a simple majority in parliament. For more, I spoke with viewers Ayaz Gal on the stated grounds by the opposition in their bid to oust Khan. The opposition insists that Prime Minister Imran Khan has been demonstrating poor governance and has mismanaged the national economy. And uh, they have also criticized him for some of his foreign policy decisions, like taking a very anti-West when it comes to the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. So there are several issues that they have identified claiming that if he stays in power anymore, Pakistan will certainly be, according to them, heading to a very serious political, economic and a crisis on the foreign policy front. What kind of support is this action getting from the population and politicians? The economic troubles that Pakistan has been facing for years, even under previous governments, uh, were inherited. It has been struggling to really improve the economy of the country. But then the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic added to Pakistan's problems because of these lockdowns and other restrictions on public movement over the last two years. That economic troubles have increased and there is high inflation currently. And the government is also struggling to sustain its foreign cash reserves. So that had made Prime Minister Imran Khan really unpopular. When the conflict broke out uh, between Russia and Ukraine, Prime Minister, in his public statements, started advocating a negotiated settlement and refusing to condemn the Russian aggression against Ukraine. Anything that goes against the West or anti-America is quite popular in Pakistan. So this is how he started responding to this criticism of him being really unpopular in the country. And that has regenerated support for Khan over the last couple of months. Prime Minister Khan accused some, quote, foreign-funded conspiracy groups, unquote, that they are the ones planning to oust him from power. Has he named names? Has he revealed the identity of the group or groups behind this action? 
he has uh, kept it vague. He did not name any country. He did not name any group. But then in his speech to the crowd yesterday in Islamabad, he was waving a piece of paper that he said was a threatening letter he received from some foreign country, which he did not name, that Pakistan national interest will be undermined. He said this is a letter that contains threat against Pakistan, but he did not say or discuss the nature of the threat. But indirectly, he suggested that his anti-West stance actually prompted uh, this political turmoil against him. This is what he tried to convey to his voters. Uh, and that was quite a serious allegation. And that's why we heard the opposition today demanding that the prime minister must present this letter to the parliament and also substantiate his allegation with some proof so that uh, there can be a debate and uh, the nation should know who is lying and who is telling the truth. How does this play out? Does the opposition stand a chance of really ousting the prime minister? One thing we should know that there have been no confidence motions against prime ministers in Pakistan in the past, but never ever such a motion has succeeded or dislodged any of those prime ministers. So that is one fact. And secondly, the opposition is relying on a series of defections and it is also hoping that the political disputes between the government and its coalition partners have also undermined Khan's thin majority in the parliament. And they're hoping that they will be able to bring simple majority or 172 votes. The National Assembly consists of 342 members and the opposition requires 172 votes to win this no-confidence motion against the Prime Minister. That's VOS Ayaz speaking with me from Islamabad. In other news, Mexican authorities say gunmen killed 19 people on Sunday night in an attack on a clandestine cockfighting venue in the western part of the country in one of the worst mass shootings under the current government. The killing took place in Las Tejanas in the state of Michoacan, where the powerful Jalisco New Generation cartel has been fighting local gangs for control of drug routes. State prosecutors said in a statement that 16 of the dead were men and three were women, and officials were trying to establish who was responsible for the shootings, which were reported to authorities about 10.30 p.m. local time. All the victims had gunshot wounds and crime scene investigators were checking reports that several other people were injured and taken to hospital. Michoacan had long been one of the most lawless areas in Mexico, and last month, the United States temporarily suspended shipments of avocados from the state after U.S. inspectors received threats. The suspension was later lifted. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voanews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Israel has hosted the foreign ministers of four Arab nations and the United States in a bid to strengthen its position in a rapidly shifting Middle East. The gathering brought together the top diplomats from all but one of the Arab countries that have normalized relations with Israel in U.S.-mediated negotiations. Linda Granstein reports from Jerusalem. Israel's foreign minister and the host of the summit, Yair Lapid, said the meetings of the foreign ministers of Israel, Bahrain, the UAE, Egypt, and Morocco would become a permanent regional forum. He also made it clear who the forum is aimed at. This new architecture, the shared capabilities, 
we are building intimidates and deters our common enemies, first and foremost, Iran and its proxies. During the summit, a suspected terrorist apparently affiliated with Islamic State killed two Israeli border policemen. It was the third attack in a week, and all of the summit participants condemned it. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the 2020 peace treaties between Israel and several Arab countries were making once impossible things possible. The Abraham Accords are making the lives of people across your countries more peaceful, more prosperous, more vibrant, more integrated. They're allowing governments to focus their energies and attentions on the issues that are actually affecting the lives of our citizens and making them better. The United States has and will continue to strongly support a process that is transforming this region and beyond. Also present was Egyptian Foreign Minister Samah Shukri, who called on Israel to resume negotiations with the Palestinians, who were also conspicuously absent from the summit. During these discussions, uh, we did highlight the importance of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process the importance of maintaining the credibility and the viability of the two-state solution that uh, for Israel and a Palestinian state to live side by side in peace uh, with recognized uh, borders for a Palestinian state uh, in accordance with the 67 lines with East Jerusalem as its capital. The foreign minister of the UAE, Minister Sheikh Abdullah bin Zayed al-Nahyan, reminded participants how new all of these relationships still are. It's new for, I think, Abdul Latif and Nasser and myself to be in Israel. This is our first time. So if we are curious sometimes and um, we want to know things and learn. It's because although Israel has been part of this region for a very long time and we've not, not known each other, uh, so it's time to catch up. Meanwhile, Jordan's King Abdullah arrived in Ramallah to meet Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in his first trip to the West Bank since 2017. Linda Gradstein for VOA News, Jerusalem. New research claims that much of Australia's multi-billion dollar carbon abatement scheme is fraudulent. It alleges that up to 80% of so-called carbon credits are issued to projects that do not have environmental integrity. The framework encourages Australian businesses in, for example, agriculture, transport and co-production to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases they emit and to undertake activities that store carbon. From Sydney Field Mercer reports. Australia's 11-year-old carbon credit scheme aims to reward farmers, landholders and other businesses to store carbon in trees, the soil or to use different methods to cut emissions. For every tonne of greenhouse gases stored or prevented, projects registered under Australia's official $3.4 billion emissions reduction fund receive a carbon credit. The credit is essentially a certificate or permit allowing the holder to emit a tonne of greenhouse gas. Most credits have been bought by the government in Canberra, while a growing number are privately traded by companies wanting to offset their own emissions. However, new research has uncovered alleged widespread inconsistencies in the system. The study was undertaken by Australian National University law professor Andrew McIntosh, who was involved in the development of the initial scheme. 
He told the Australian Broadcasting Corporation that most of the credits don't represent a real or extra carbon abatement. What we've got happening at the moment is a collection of things across a range of methods, issuing credits to not clear forests that were never going to be cleared, to issue credits for growing trees that simply aren't there, or issuing credits for growing trees that are already there, or in the case of that landfill gas, giving people credits for capturing and combusting methane in circumstances where it would have been done anyway because it's commercially viable to do it. McIntosh has called for the entire program to be scrapped and for the process to start again from scratch. In response, Australia's clean energy regulator, which runs the initiative, said it would assess the research. It has, however, insisted the projects it manages are carefully monitored. The regulator rejected assertions in the study that between 70 to 80 percent of the carbon credits issued were essentially worthless. Australia's centre-right government pledged last year to deliver net zero emissions by 2050 in a practical, responsible way while preserving Australian jobs and generating new opportunities for industries. Campaigners, however, have argued that the government's strong support for the fossil fuel industries is environmentally irresponsible. Australia has high rates of per capita emissions, in large part because of its reliance on coal for much of its electricity generation. Phil Mercer for VOA News, Sydney. This is Science in a Minute. The largest carnivorous dinosaur was not the Tyrannosaurus, but a genus called the Spinosaurus. Scientists report that the Spinosaurus lived in what is now North Africa about 99 to 93.5 million years ago during the late Cretaceous period. The giant dinosaur is said to have lived partially in both marine and land environments. So along with land animals, it also hunted for its food in the water. Over the years, some scientists thought it waded through the water, while others thought it swam to get its prey. In a new study published by the journal Nature, a team of researchers provide evidence based on the density of Spinosaurus bones that the giant meat-eater had bones that would allow them to swim underwater to hunt for their meals. I am VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 1935 UTC, Join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. has been international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinedua from washington wishing you a great day 
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. One of the responsibilities of the Secretary of State is determining on behalf of the United States whether atrocities have been committed. On March 21st, Secretary Antony Blinken exercised that responsibility by declaring that members of Burma's military committed genocide and crimes against humanity against the country's Rohingya Muslim minority. It's a decision that I reached based on reviewing a factual assessment and legal analysis prepared by the State Department, which included detailed documentation by a range of independent, impartial sources, including human rights organizations like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, as well as our own rigorous fact-finding. One such source is a 2018 report compiled by the Department of State. The report was based on a survey of more than 1,000 Rohingya refugees living in Bangladesh, all of whom were displaced by the violence in 2016. Or 2017. Three quarters of those interviewed said that they personally witnessed members of the military kill someone. More than half witnessed acts of sexual violence. One in five witnessed a mass casualty event, that is, the killing or injury of more than 100 people in a single incident. The evidence also points to a clear intent behind these mass atrocities, the intent to destroy Rohingya, said Secretary Blinken. Intent is evident in public comments by men online, the commander-in-chief of the Burmese military, who was overseeing the operation. On September 1st, 2017, as soldiers were raising villages, killing, torturing, raping men, women, and children, he said this, and I quote, the Bengali problem was a long-standing one that has become an unfinished job. The government and office is taking great care in solving it. Percentages, numbers, patterns, intent, these are critically important to reach the determination of genocide, said Secretary Blinken. Of course, the path out of genocide also runs through justice. Local and international human rights organizations have spent years documenting atrocities against Rohingya and other ethnic and religious groups in Burma. The case files are growing, he said, and the day will come when those responsible for these appalling acts will have to answer for them. With today's determination, the United States reaffirms its broader commitment to accompany Rohingya on this path out of genocide, toward truth, toward accountability, toward a home that will welcome them as equal members, that will respect their human rights and dignity, alongside that of all people in Burma. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America, Washington, ba ba